Rashad Ireland is the first dialysis patient to complete one of the most grueling events in sports, an Ironman triathlon. That's a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike race, and a complete marathon of 26.2 miles, all held consecutively. Shad has also been on dialysis for 25 years and experienced two failed kidney transplants. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN counselor Ronald Falk interviews Shad Ireland about his life, his training, his activism, and how kidney patients can improve their lives. Hello, this is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology, and with me here today is Shad Ireland. I'll let Shad introduce himself and let him tell us all about the wonderful things he's doing. Shad? Hi, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here to talk with you guys today. I've been on kidney dialysis for, I've been successfully living with the disease for 30 years. I'm a professional athlete. I run the Shad Ireland Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to education prevention access and awareness, areas that we believe that we can make a significant difference for people living with kidney disease. And as I said, it's a pleasure to be here. And you really have made a substantial difference for individuals with kidney disease. You're a folk hero in a number of ways. Let me ask you, how did you get into Ironman competitions? I think those individuals who decide that they have to press themselves Running, swimming, and biking are slightly crazy in any case. How did you get into it? Well, the Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run uh, consecutively. And uh, for me, it started back in the early 90s when I was in the process of losing my first kidney transplant. I slipped into a coma. I went from 145 pounds down to near 75 pounds. And... I was, um, well, my parents were told to start making funeral arrangements that I was not going to come out of this. And uh, I had developed uh, ARDS, which is Associated Respiratory Distress Syndrome, and the doctors uh, really didn't feel that there was anything else they could do. I came out of the coma in about two weeks, fortunately, and, and then I was discharged from the hospital, sent home to effectively die on my mother's couch. I was given a six-month life expectancy. Nobody expected me to rebound. and I saw the Iron Man on TV, and it was uh, the year that they collapsed at the finish line. Uh, I watched this woman crawl the last 100 meters, and it was one of the most inspiring things I'd ever seen. You know, up until this point, I had no direction in my life, no purpose, and I was expecting to die. I was not living well with this disease, and and I found myself sitting on the edge of the couch screaming at the television, cheering for this woman that I had. I did not know and had no idea who she was or her story, and that's the power of Iron Man. Uh, it has the ability to inspire. And uh, that afternoon, I made a promise to myself. I told myself that was going to be me, and that promise gave me the hope and the strength to fight. And it took me 24 months to get back to being just another dialysis patient, debilitated, weak, sick, you know, struggling with all the comorbid conditions that come along with this diagnosis. And the rest is history, as they say. What a motivational event. How do you motivate yourself in the various parts of that long uh, run, cycle, swim? Which one do you like the best? Which one do you like the least? And how do you keep yourself going while you're doing it? Well, I love I love riding my bike. Cycling is my favorite. Uh, least favorite is running. As I've gotten older, I'd prefer to drive. <laughs> <laughs> But motivation comes directly from inspiration. 
people say, you know, oh, I'm going to do this after I get motivated. They never become motivated. Motivation is a byproduct of inspiration. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, what inspires you? For me as a patient, I just wanted to live. I mean, I, I was telling a reporter last week that, you know, I'm still just this 10-year-old kid that doesn't want to die. You know, I was diagnosed at age 10, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, figure this out. And, and we have. We, you know, I found a model that allows myself and other patients that, that implement it to create stability. And that's something that I'm pretty excited about looking at this. I mean, there has to be something here that, that can be applied to the rest of my community. And that's really what drives me. You know, I race for them. And as a leader, you set the standard by which others can follow. I think that you lead from the front, that uh, I would never ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do. And that's why I've had success working with other dialysis patients, uh, people given a, a CKD diagnosis, because I've been there and, you know, I'm not asking them to do anything that I wouldn't do, and, and I've had success doing it. And I think if you can show somebody the path, if you can give them the tools and the resources, uh, they'll have success too. How do you manage your medical condition while preparing for, for one of these events? What different things do you do? Well, uh, longer, more frequent dialysis. Uh, I'm a huge advocate for that. I am an advocate for uh, first-line therapies and first-line medications. You know, I think as the debate rages on about, you know, bundling and all these other things, I mean, we need to look at uh, empowerment. We need to look at creating stability, and you do that through access to therapy, access to medications. You know, longer and more frequent dialysis has made all the difference in the world for me. I can tell you the model that, that I've followed that uh, I've created and the program that we've ultimately developed through my foundation called Baseline looks at therapy, looks at nutrition, looks at exercise. And the therapy creates the stability. Uh, the problem that we have is most patients believe that they're symptomatic to the therapy. They're not. They're symptomatic to the disease. So if we can treat uh, the symptoms, create stability, they can go back to work and do the things that they want to do. Now, for myself, it was hit and miss. It was trial by error when I first started this. I was told that this was impossible. Nobody given this diagnosis, nobody being on dialysis, let alone, you know, at the time I started training, I was on dialysis for 20 years, could, you know, accomplish Ironman, that I was going to kill myself. And so with the help of uh, the doctor that I had at the time, we increased my dialysis therapy to four and a half hours. At the time, I was doing in-center dialysis, so I couldn't dialyze four days a week. But I think I think the model for um, stable, healthy patients uh, and cost-effective uh, management of this disease can be achieved through four-day-a-week therapy. Uh, I dialyze every other day. I dialyze at home. I do home hemodialysis. And how that then came looking at my lap values, looking at how you, you know, kind of stabilize those, and I did that through nutrition. And then the thing that changed everything was, was exercise. I mean, when I started, I couldn't walk 30 seconds on the treadmill. People given a, a kidney diagnosis are cardiovascular patients. I don't think we look at this community as cardiovascular patients. And, and I think exercise has made all the difference in the world for me, but it's a combination of all those things. What's your favorite food going into a race? <laughs> Uh, I have a proclivity for donuts. So, donuts. Um, what kind of yeah. donuts? You, uh, there's a Krispy Kreme run here in North Carolina that <laughs> I've always found uh, absolutely I astonishing. Prefer just the cake donut, but uh, 
But, you know, nutrition is so important. And, you know, here's the thing. I have this conversation with patients and dietitians a lot. Well, I'm just going to tell patients in moderation. And I think the approach needs to be, okay, this is what you need to do. This is what you really shouldn't do. And, you know, the patient can, you know, work within those parameters. You look at renal osteodystrophy and some of the other things that impact patients. And, you know, I don't, I don't drink milk. Uh, I don't eat cheese because that would just exacerbate the situation. And so, you know, some patients, they get fixated on the food. You know, it's, it's about control at the end of the day. What they don't realize is that they have, they've always had control. That was the one thing that, you know, it took me a long time to realize. I struggled because I felt that I had no control over a disease that took everything from me. And all along, I was the one that had control. Home hemo clearly empowers patients, provides the flexibility and the control that you're describing. What advice would you give to patients in units? I've seen you on online talking to individuals in dialysis units. What advice would you give them to let them control their own treatment and disease? The best advice I could give is uh, educate themselves on the different treatment options, the different modalities, all of the things that are available. And um, I think it starts by picking up a pen and a piece of paper, writing down where it is you want to be, the things you want to do, what do you want to accomplish, what inspires you, and then ask yourself, you know, the tough question, how am I going to get there? You know, for me, I wanted to be a professional athlete ever since I was a kid. And, you know, I've, I've achieved that. And then different things grew out of that. The idea to start my foundation, the idea to be uh, a role model, to uh, be impactful. You know, there's always the next mountain. Once you achieve success, there's always something else that you will find. And uh, so as far as therapy goes, I think patients want to feel better. And so they need to look at which modality will allow them to do that. I would encourage anybody to go home uh, if they can, you know, whether that be peritoneal dialysis, whether that be home hemodialysis. There are great options now. There's in-center nocturnal. There's short daily therapy. There's uh, the different therapies that are out there. It's an exciting time to be given this diagnosis because of the different options that are available. When I started, there really wasn't that many options available back in 1983. So... I think we have to get patients to reconnect with hope. I think we have to get them to believe that their situation can improve. I know they want to, but uh, I don't think that they have the tools or the resources. And I think um, the physicians that are listening to this, that are committed to that, uh, the healthcare workers that are listening to this, you know, taking that approach could help them in achieving the success that they want, empowering their patients. But the best advice, like I said, is, is, to, is to educate yourself, to look at all the different modalities, to become a student of this disease. Dialysis is, is rehabilitative therapy. Your disease does not manage your life. The management of your disease allows you to live a full life. You've had two kidney transplants. How does one deal with a failing transplant going back on dialysis? What advice would you give to patients who've had transplants and who are losing another one so that the despair of losing a transplant is somewhat mitigated? I met a lot of patients that have lost transplants, and for them it's devastating. Transplants uh, uh, is, a, is a treatment option. It's a, it's a therapy. And in losing two transplants and then discovering home therapy, you know, I've, I've put my transplant aspirations on hold. You know, it's always an option for me, but uh, 
at this time, I'm living well on dialysis successfully. And so for those that are in the throes of losing a transplant, it's difficult. It's overwhelming. I mean, they feel like they're losing their freedom. And that's about perspective. You know, I just had a chance to talk with Lori Hartwell the other day, and, you know, she's gotten her third transplant, and she's doing very well, and she's healthy. You know, there's there's always the possibility. I think you have to get them to believe in the possibility of it all. You know, a door closes, another opens. Just because you may lose that transplant doesn't mean that you can't continue to have the, the freedom and the flexibility to do the things you want to do. Uh, it may mean need dialysis therapy until you get the next transplant, you know, finding the best therapy that fits with your lifestyle. Again, it goes back to choice. We as patients have choice now that we didn't have before. One of the things that your organization is trying to do is to promote public awareness of all things kidney. The American Society of Nephrology is trying to do that. The National Kidney Foundation is trying to do that. Yet it seems that all of our voices are somewhat silent when compared to other disease states, breast yeah. cancer, prostate cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Why? Why do you think more people are aware of those other disease states and haven't gotten our kidney message? Well, I think, uh, number one, it's approach. I think insanity is defined as doing something over and over and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think we can do some things to change our approach. I think we don't have a singular voice. I think our, our community is fragmented. And I think there are things that we can do to come together, you know, really looking at, at focus. You know, one of the things that I'm excited about with this baseline program that we've developed is that there really hasn't been a structured approach in the past. I mean, we provide dialysis therapy and, you know, we pretty much say, you know, wait for a transplant. I mean, the median wait time is five and a half years now. Uh, patients are deteriorating in the first one to three years due to the comorbid conditions that they either come to dialysis with or that they develop. And so being from my foundation, looking at uh, empowerment, looking at tools and resources and, and giving them a, this model to follow, you know, is a way that, that we can help. But, but I think cancer is what 96% of all the research dollars that are out there. And that's because there there is a singular voice there. One of my heroes is Lance Armstrong. I've watched Lance bring an intensity to advocacy that I respect and admire, and it's the same approach that I'm taking. You know, success is never reinvented. You find a successful model that works, and you apply it to your life, and guess what? You'll have success, too. You may have to fine-tune it a bit, but we can learn a lot from some of those other disease states and, you know, how they've been successful in, in their education attempts. Kidney disease far out exceeds some of those other disease states as far as impact. If you look at financial, if you look at um, the growth of kidney disease, you're looking at obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. In the United States, we've got two-thirds of the U.S. population that's affected by at least one of the leading causes. You've got 133 million people in this country that are obese or overweight, 54 million adults are predisposed to develop type 2 diabetes, and uh, high blood pressure is reaching epidemic proportions, impacting millions. If you're a person of color, you're disproportionately affected by this disease. So part of the problem, I think, is there's just so much that goes into kidney disease. We'll talk about obesity and diabetes, even high blood pressure to a point, but uh, 
but nobody correlates the two or, or the three, I should say. You know, they don't they don't link kidney disease to that. And I think we can do a better job of doing that. Also, I think we're a sports and entertainment-based society. I, I think I'm positioned to educate people in a way that they're more receptive to. You know, athletes uh, have the ability to impact people in ways that I think a lot of times athletes don't realize. I work with some guys in the NFL and others, and some get it and some don't. And what I do is a privilege. I'm very proud of what I do. I'm very lucky to do what I do. And because I've been given this gift, I have a responsibility to give back to my community. I think we all do. I think we all need to give back in some way. I think we'd be a better society if we all did. question again goes back to inspiration and, you know, what are you inspired to do? I can't stand by and watch uh, other people develop this disease and not do anything. You know, I was raised to believe that if you see somebody that needs help, you help them. And if you see something that's broken, you try to fix it. Our system is not sustainable. And, you know, I think the, the knee-jerk response that we're seeing right now with massive cuts and, and bundling is reactionary. I think we need to stop reacting. I think we need to start being proactive and uh, more solution-focused. Let me go to an issue of message for a minute. The message that people have chronic kidney disease that is a stage that may eventuate in end-stage kidney disease is a difficult pill for many citizens to swallow. Do you think the naming of this entity is causing some of the publicity problem? In other words, the use of the word chronic associated with kidney disease? I think chronic is good because you can live with it. I mean, it is something that is chronic, and but, you know, I... I think it's, we, listen, if we want to have success and we want to change the perception, we need to change the face of this disease. That is so many patients and so many people say, it's over. There's nothing I can do. When something ends and something begins, your life takes a different direction. And I, I think that we can do a better job of promoting people successfully living with this disease. And then I think we have a responsibility to show that financially makes sense. The thing is, is this, we, we, you know, we talk about cost of medication. You know, there are certain medications that can create stability, but we don't provide access to those medications because we're focused on the, uh, on the cost per se. We're not looking at the back-end savings. You know, all of our money that we spend in the renal community, if you look at it from the government perspective, they're investing in the back-end. They're, they're paying for things that are preventative. You know, if you really want to curb the tide of this disease, you've got to educate people. You've got to prevent the growth of this disease. And by doing that, you can create long-term um, you know, financial stability. Uh, these costs can be managed, but we have to do that by providing the best care, not trying to ration or limit care or just looking at cost. You can't look at, at just one factor. There are multiple factors that go into this. Imagine if we had a stable patient in CKD that, you know, through baseline, we gave them the tools, they created stability. And then as they migrated into dialysis, they were healthy patients. That's unheard of right now. Uh, patients that start dialysis are, are significantly uremic there. And then we try to educate them in, in 30 to 60 days. We, we bombard them with all this information, and uh, they're overwhelmed. They shut down because of it. So we need to change the face of this disease, period. We need to change perceptions. Part of the problem is we go into Washington, and you know, we bring out Mrs. Jones who says, you know, please don't take away my dialysis therapy. You know, the whole time, people that they're talking to are looking at their watches. 
thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. Back in the 70s, you know, when ESRD became a, you know, an entitlement through Medicare, that, you know, if, if, if we paid for this, that we would save lives, that we would, that these people would be healthy and productive. The disease has grown exponentially. We've been trying to work it out to the best of our abilities, and I think we're at a point now where, you know, where we can deliver on that promise. And uh, that's the part that excites me. What can societies like the American Society of Nephrology do to help? Research is important. Education is important. Looking at ways to implement methods of prevention, how do we empower? Uh, I think how do we inspire? That's the question that needs to be asked. How do we become inclusive instead of exclusive? Um, I wish I had the answer. I, I, I think there are many approaches to the same finish line. We as a community need to come together. First off, we need to look at how we can create a singular voice where I'm afraid what, you know, what the results will be. We have to come together. It's nobody's fault. Some people will say, oh, it's the drug companies because they charge so much. It's not the patient's fault because they're not compliant. Um, you know, I think, listen, the boat's already sunk. We're all in the lifeboat and we all got to paddle. So I think we have to look at how we come together. Let me ask you one last thing before we close. What would be the three recommendations you'd give to a new patient starting on dialysis that would have the most significant impact on their lives? Therapy, nutrition, and exercise. Sounds perfect, and you would heartily promote the exercise part. You know, okay. first and foremost, they are cardiac patients. You know, every patient should be, you know, seen or assessed by a cardiologist. You know, you just don't go out and start exercising. You have to set a goal, and then you have to figure out how you're going to get there. And uh, you're only as good as the medical team that you surround yourself with. And utilizing your doctor, your dietitian, you know, your healthcare workers, um, because they bring experience to the table. They bring knowledge. They bring information that's so important. And uh, working with them, you can create stability. You can um, you can get back to going to work, doing the things that you want to do. But uh, yes, that model that we call baseline. I believe will revolutionize the, the way that people are living with this disease. Shed Ireland, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and to hear the motivational tones in your voice. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.